You may uh, recall uh, this verse. Maybe you've heard this verse before. It's from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 10, verse 14. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Have you heard that verse before? Anybody heard that before? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, generally, we don't um, especially like the whole idea of a fearful God. We don't like the idea or even want to talk about the idea of fearing God. We're so intent on God being loving, and we want to talk about those aspects of his care for us. And so talking about a fearful God is something that's kind of pushed off uh, to the side. It seems so unattractive to people and not especially the best way to get people interested in even thinking about God. And so when we come to places in the Bible where people fear God, and we see that repeatedly in the scriptures, we tend to sanitize the word and we make it, you know, really this is about awe of God, or this is about the reverence of God, or treating God with honor or respect. And certainly as we study the scriptures and we see the fear of God in different places, depending on the context, it could very much mean awe or reverence of God, but not always. There are many places in the scripture where when it says that we should fear God or that someone fears God, that it literally means they're afraid of God. The New American Standard, in fact, uh, which is the most literal of the English translations, translate that, that verse from Hebrews 10 this way. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We, we understand our God to be transcendent is a word that we use. In other words, God is other. He's so completely different than us. And we understand our God to be entirely holy. And that we as mere humans tainted by sin cannot cope with and are actually terrified by these face-to-face -face encounters that we would have with our God. Daniel in today's passage has one such encounter where he comes face to face with God and he's terrified. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you have them open now, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10 and let's unpack a little bit of, of what we see here. Daniel 10 through 12, the remainder of the book, the last three chapters, is a single episode with a, a final single vision that Daniel receives. And Daniel 10 that we're going to look at today is actually an introduction to the whole episode. We're going to see Daniel's reaction in chapter 10. We won't start looking at the vision itself until next week we look at chapter 11. But Daniel's reaction here is a result of seeing the vision. It's the result of having an appearance of being face-to-face -face with Jesus himself. It's of uh, finding out about Michael and having another encounter with Gabriel, these two uh, powerful angels of God. It's also about the revelation that there are some named powerful demons that Daniel might not have known about before that are at work in an unseen realm. 
And so in light of all of that, you think that he's seeing this incredible vision. He has an encounter with God. There are these powerful angels. There are these powerful demons. In light of all of this, it's, it's not surprising then that the descriptions that we have of Daniel in this chapter are that he retained no strength, that he fell on his face and fell into a deep sleep as though dead, that he was mute, rendered unable to speak, that he had no breath left in him. He was left breathless, that he was trembling in the face of all that he was seeing. And as I studied this, I just realized we could do with a little bit more of a sense of that in our own lives. that we could do with a little trembling before our God. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into God's word and see exactly what Daniel went through as we seek to learn more about our God here today. Let's pray. Father, help us not to be too familiar with you, and, and certainly we're grateful that you are a God who is near. You've brought us near to yourself. Father, you're a God who loves us, who's called us your sons and daughters. You've poured out grace and given us gifts beyond anything we could ever deserve. You've made us part of your own family. You've given us promises of eternity. You hear our prayers when we call out to you. There's no longer any separation between us and you. You truly have welcomed us. Yeah, Father, I wouldn't want us with all of that familiarity to treat you with contempt and to not realize exactly who you are. And so God, I pray today that you would help us as we look at your word to see that. Maybe bring a little bit more perspective to who you are and what our relationship with you should be like. And God, that in seeing your word, played out here today that we would be transformed and changed. God, alter our thinking. Inform us where we've been ignorant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. The point of this entire uh, chapter is for us to tremble before the Lord. And so here's what we're going to go after. Tremble, Christian. Tremble because you hold in your hands the Word of God. You hold in your hands the Word of God. Let's look at uh, verse 1. This is uh, Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true. And it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. We'll stop there and, and just again, set this up for ourselves as we look at this entire series through the book of Daniel, the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Babylonian empire is now off to the side. The Persians have come in and of importance uh, in, in, in dating it here is to understand that by this time, the first exiles who had been taken out of Israel 70 years prior, the first exiles have now gone back to Israel and are resettling the land and recultivating their crops and rebuilding. Actually, now by the third year, they're very much in the process of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And so 70 years have passed. 
And we've taken only 10 weeks to get to Daniel chapter 10. We're going to take a couple more weeks. I mean, it only takes us three months to get through the book of Daniel, but we've covered 70 years of history in the process of studying this book. Daniel came as a teenager, and now he's in his late 80s as we see him here in chapter 10. And so um, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, you can go to that book, just jot down that reference, Ezra 1, 1, you can see that the exiles are back during uh, the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Two years later, they're rebuilding uh, the temple. And so um, not everybody went back, though. Not every Jew went back. And obviously, Daniel didn't go back. And you know from the book of Esther that Esther and Mordecai didn't go back. And so there are some Jews who, for whatever reason, did not return to the land uh, right away. Now, notice a word was revealed to Daniel, and this was a time when the Hebrew scriptures themselves, parts of them were complete, like the Torah and some of the writings, but the whole Old Testament canon, or what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, were not yet complete. Obviously, God was still revealing. Sometime after the exiles would return and Israel would be kind of reestablished, Malachi the prophet would prophesy the last of the Old Testament books, and then there would be 400 silent years, and then Jesus would come as a baby, would take on human flesh, live his life some 33 years, and then after that, maybe another 60 years after that, by the end of the first century, century AD, the New Testament canon, the 27 books of the New Testament would all be written. And then over the next decades, the church would recognize that this is indeed the scripture. These 27 books are ours. And so the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 29 of the New Testament formed the canon, which we had all of that uh, really by the early part of the second century AD. But at the time, Daniel 10:1, at the time, it's not complete. And so God is still revealing, still giving his word to his prophets and for his people. And so we, we have the scripture in front of us now. Uh, the Bible's still coming together. God's still revealing. And the word, notice the word was true. And it was a great conflict or it was about a great conflict. We're going to come back to that in a few moments. And Daniel, he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. He didn't have it at this precise moment because he's going to go through a period now where some revealing needs to take place. We're going to have that. Daniel 1's kind of like a summary statement over the entire vision of Daniel 10, 11, and 12. Daniel came to understand of the vision and had understanding of the vision, understand the word and have understanding of the vision. Now, the fact that we have God's word in our hands is no small thing. In fact, if you have God's word in front of you right now, would you just lift it up like this and just say, we have God's word in our hands. Say that. We have God's word in our hands. And, and I don't care if you have like an analog version of God's word or how many people have an electronic version of God's word. Just hold that up right now. And you're looking at it on your iPhone or on your iPad, and that's awesome too. We're not like uh, discriminating between those who have print Bibles and those who have digital Bibles. That's uh, not really a thing at all. This book is unlike any other book in history, and we should tremble at the realization that God has actually spoken to us in this way and given us his word to hold in our, in our hands. And we would understand that if we understood what we have here. Hebrews 4.12 helps us get there. For the word of God, Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of 
of the heart. There's no other book like this. There's no other book that I can read and study and learn that actually tells me about me in this way. That pierces to the division of my heart. It gets at my motives and my intentions. It knows what I'm thinking. How many times have I sat through a sermon or read a book that's explaining God's word or spending time in God's word personally and I read something randomly and it's speaking directly into what's happening in my life right now? Only God's word does that because it's piercing to the division of soul and spirit. It knows what I'm thinking. It knows everything about the human condition because God wrote this book. And he gave us his word to have in our hands. No other book is an actual weapon in the hands of the spiritual warfare warrior. Our, our battle is against sin and death. Our, our battle is against the forces of evil. And the battle is waged in our hearts and in our minds. And that's why we say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's where the battle is being fought. And so we take up the sword of the Spirit among all the armor of God that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. We take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. No other book reveals the heart reveals mysteries. No other book leads the way. Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. No other book has endured despite all efforts to stamp it out. Governments through the ages have sought to eradicate and eliminate the word of God. Governments have martyred those who have translated the scriptures into the language of the common people. Many who loved Jesus and worked on translating and teaching the scriptures were, were martyred for murdered officially by the state. I couldn't stamp it out. The Bible is still the number one bestseller of all history. Why? Because Isaiah 40 verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades. Governments come and go. I added that part. <laughs> but the word of God stands forever. Amen? We should tremble at it. Isaiah 66, 5, hear the word of the Lord, the prophet said. You who tremble at his word. See, I think our familiarity with the Bible has led us to treat it with neglect and contempt. We've taken it for granted, and we've ignored it. How many of you would sit here this morning and say, the last time I read the Bible was the last time I was in this room, a week ago, two weeks ago, a month ago? How many of you never pick it up, never open the app, never read a verse between those times that we're actually here looking at it together. We need to be reminded what this actually is. This isn't the latest novel. It's not a self-help book that you picked up off the shelf at chapters. 
There's nothing like this book. 2 Peter 1, 19 and 20, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. If this is what it says it is, you should pay attention to this. Why? Because no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. This isn't just some guru's idea of cool spiritual things to say. This isn't just some inspirational book with platitudes for healthy living. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's no book like this book. These are the words of God. We hold it in our hand. Why wouldn't we tremble at that? God has spoken to us in this way. Why wouldn't you treat it in a certain way? Why wouldn't you give attention to it? Why wouldn't you read it? Why wouldn't you study it? Why wouldn't you meditate on it? Why wouldn't you memorize it and have it locked in your heart? Why wouldn't you be in a small group to get together with other people during the week and to talk about it again and find out how we could live this out? Why wouldn't you ensure that you're together with God's people every single Sunday? No excuse for not being here. Not deciding if I'm coming to church. I'm coming to church. I'm going to hear God's word with God's people every week. And if I happen to have to miss because I'm away or I'm sick or I have work, some good excuse. But I'm going to make sure I catch up on that message. I don't want to miss a single thing in the series and the thing that God is doing among us as a people. Because God has spoken. This is his word. We hold it in our hands. We ought to tremble at that. We ought to tremble at that. Tremble, Christian, because you also stand now in the presence of God. Not only do you have his word in your hands, but you're, you're standing right now in his presence. Pick it up at verse uh, two now, in those days, I, uh, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist, and his body was like barrel, and his face like the appearance of lightning, and his eyes like flaming torches, and his arms and his legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Who do you suppose that is? Any guesses? You think that's Michael? You think that's Gabriel? You think it's some ordinary, run-of-the-mill, rank-and-file angel? Who, who are we looking at here? This, this is Christ. This is Jesus. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of, of Jesus who is God and existed from all time, eternity past. And, and he's, he's showing up here before he shows up for us in the gospel. Verse 7, and I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them and they fled to hide themselves. 
So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision. No strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words. As I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Daniel's crushed by what happens here. He's already in the, in the midst of, of fasting and from his normal diet. He's not taking care of himself in the way he would. It, it, the anointing is, is likely related to living in the desert and just putting lotions on to keep the, sin, uh, the skin soft. And he's, so he's fasting. He's, he's, he's in a special place where he's trying to discern God's will. And it's about to become at this point, I'm just going to put this in, in quotes, worse for him. He's already in a bit of a state. And it's become worse for him because in verses 4 through 6, this description we have, he encounters a man whose description can, can lead us to believe that is none other than Jesus. He's looking at God. Now, no one's ever seen God. John 1, 18 actually tells us that. No one has ever seen God. Remember Moses. Moses had this encounter. He's the one who, who came close as, as anybody did. And Moses has this encounter with God on Sinai, and, 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 and Moses asks a silly question, silly question, show me your glory. Okay, this is a recipe for instant evaporation, okay? Show me your glory. Nobody can look at the glory of God. But Moses asks for this, so God, God says, you know what, I'm going to do this, but go ahead, hide yourself in the cleft of this rock, I'm going to kind of put my hand over you to shield you, and then I'm going to pass by, and just like the, just the back of me, just the back, you're going to see just a glimpse of the back. Well, listen, it was so overwhelming that he started glowing, and when he came down off the mountain and the people saw him, they were terrified. And Moses had to wear a veil. I mean, that was only like he didn't even see God. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right hand, who's that? That's Jesus. The only God who is at the Father's right hand, he has made him known. So the only way you're ever going to see God is if you see Jesus. And that's who Daniel is seeing here. In fact, the guys that are with him don't even see him. Verse 7, those with him did not see the vision, trembling. They fled. They're not even seeing it, but they have a sense of what's going on here, and they run away to hide themselves. And Daniel, for his part, he's left alone. No strength, verse 8, no strength left in me. My radiant appearance. I don't know what he's saying here. Like, I'm usually a pretty good-looking guy. I think that's what he's saying. Okay? My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. I retained no strength. Then he starts to hear the words, and he, bam, down on his face. And he's out. I mean, this, this is, uh, I mean, he's out. He's down for the count. That's what the presence of God does. It lays us out. We often pray for and sing about the presence of God, don't we? We invite God into our presence. Come Holy Spirit. God, we want to be in your presence. You know, we, we invite God to do this in our worship and in our prayers. 
We long for it as we experience the pain and loss of this life. We long to see Jesus face to face. and We cry out rightly, come Lord Jesus. We want to see him break through the clouds. We want to be done with all of the pain and the sorrow of this life. Now I believe that while we would love to have him with us right now, I believe that the Jesus that we really want to come and see us is the Jesus that we're actually comfortable with. You see, we, we want the human Jesus to come and see us, don't we? I mean, we read the Gospels, and that's what we want. We want to be able to sit with Jesus and have him teach us. We want that Jesus with us. We're thinking of, the, to borrow the phrase from the Christmas carol, we're thinking of the veiled in flesh Jesus. The Jesus we can most easily identify with us, with. And the problem with that, of course, is that Jesus has now been glorified. Jesus, Jesus came, this glorified Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth and he took on human flesh and he lived among us and he, he was, for all intents and purposes, unrecognizable from any other human being. He grew up as a child in the town of Nazareth. No one had any idea. He lived his earthly life. He walked around. He taught. He was condemned and crucified. On the third day, he was raised to new life by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the resurrection. And then some weeks later, he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, where he awaits his return in power and in glory as the triumphant, and I, I love this picture in Revelation chapter 19, the triumphant rider on the white horse. Well, Jesus isn't coming back the same way he came at Christmas. He's coming back as the rider on the white horse. And so to be in the presence of Jesus in his glorified form, what Daniel sees in chapter 10 is something altogether different than what the people in Galilee or Judea experienced through the gospels when he walked this earth. And it's, the, it's different than what you and I are even thinking about and wishing for. But every example of someone who has an encounter with the glorified Jesus ends up reacting the way Daniel reacted. This death-like reaction where people are laid out before God. The apostle John, for example, who wrote the gospel, three letters. He wrote the uh, book of Revelation. Revelation 1.17, he's receiving all of these revelations. And he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is a guy who loved Jesus so much and walked with him his entire earthly life, lived longer than any of the other apostles, and wrote much of the New Testament. Yet when he saw God, he fell down as though dead. Now Isaiah, who had his own encounter, tells us why it happened. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. So Isaiah now is in the throne room of God. He's going to receive messages from God that he's going to deliver to God's people. And in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. The old King James Version said, I'm undone. The NASB uh, says that I'm ruined. Isaiah, a prophet of God, is ruined in the presence of God. But he tells us why. Because he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. 
I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I, I live among sinful people. And God, you're the very embodiment of, of perfection and of holiness. Sin can't be in the presence of the Holy One. And, and so while you and I remain in these, in these uh, bodies that are corrupted by sin, the presence of God, the real presence of the glorified God elicits fear and dread and death-like reactions even in those who love Jesus, even in Daniel, even in Isaiah, even in the Apostle John and all who love the Lord. And every moment of every day, if we could capture some sense of that, every moment of every day, you and I are actually in the presence of God. I mean, you're not, you're not coming here as if this is some temple. There, there, isn't a, there isn't a holy of holies here. There's no Ark of the Covenant. The Shekinah glory does not reside at 7 George Street. The presence of God is not special here. The presence of God is everywhere. It's not unique to this place. Don't wait for it. Think you're getting it when you come here on Sundays. The presence of God is with you everywhere. When Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, it is finished. The, the veil in the temple between the holy place and the holy of holies was torn in two. God was communicating by that, that, that God was everywhere and that we could access him anywhere. But if you think about that now, so like I'm, I'm going to try and live a holy life and I want to do that because I'm, I'm serving a God who's awesome and sinless and who's everywhere and who's watching every step, who's hearing every word, who's going everywhere I go. He's in my home, he's in my workplace, he's in the car. When you're driving on the 400, speaking to myself, he's everywhere. He's in every conversation. Every moment of every day, you and I are in the presence of God. We live our lives knowing that our worship of God is not confined to a church or a set time. And so tremble, Christian, because your God is everywhere. And because, look at this next, and because you engage each, each day, you engage each day as a soldier in the army of God. Uh, there's some people in our church, and myself included, I came to faith and spent the early part of my uh, Christian life, um, I was 15 years old, at the Salvation Army. And many of you will know that church. And um, in the Salvation Army, they have adopted the metaphor of the army of God as, as kind of being stamped on their church. It's the way they do any, everything. And so pastors in the Salvation Army are called officers. And um, um, you, you, you are at a core, not a church. You're at a core, C-O-R-P-S. And um, you're, uh, if you're a member of the church, you're a soldier. I first started going there when I was around 13, 14, and I was first a junior soldier. And then I became a senior soldier or a member, a full member of the church and wore uniforms. And the whole thing was just adopting a metaphor of an army and, and extending the biblical imagery that we have. It's an appropriate imagery because we are engaged in a spiritual war. 
Now pick it up in verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Remember, he fell down flat and he's out cold and a hand touches him. And now he's just, he's just kind of made it up this far now. This is as much as he could muster, was just to get up onto his hands and on his knees. And he's still trembling. And he said to me, you know, we believe this to be Gabriel here. He said to me, oh, Daniel, man greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, fear not. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. And the prince of the kingdom of Persia, who's speaking of a strong demon now, withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, an archangel, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. And then if you jump over to verse 20 for a second, 20 and 21, again, we just see the picture. We'll come back to the verses we skipped. But then he said, do you know why I've come uh, to you? But now I will turn to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. That's another strong demon. But I tell you, what is inscribed in the book of truth, there is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And what we're getting here in, in these verses is a, a little peek behind a veil. The veil's being pulled back a little bit that separates the, the material, physical world and the immaterial, spiritual world. That curtain is being pulled back a little bit so that we can look inside and see what's going on. And what we're seeing is this this mind-boggling interconnectedness between the material world and the immaterial world. And we as Western thinkers over here in the Western world, what we like to do is we like to have different boxes for things. And so we have like a spiritual box and sometimes I'm in the spiritual box and I think about spiritual things. And then I get out of that box and I go inside the physical box and I think more about the practical things, the things that I can see in life. And here's the reality. What we're seeing in the scriptures is there are no boxes. Okay, there are no boxes. The physical world and the spiritual world are interconnected. What's happening here in front of us is being influenced and driven by an unseen spiritual warfare that's happening beyond our sight. And so if we think this example applies directly to the book of Daniel and many of the things that have happened there and as we've sought to apply it into our own culture... But the evil acts of the governments of this world, the phrase that we've used a couple of times in this series already, are government-sanctioned sin. Okay, government-sanctioned sin. These things are in fact acting in concert with the spiritual forces of darkness that are operating beyond our sight. And we're going to talk a couple of series in the new year. Let me just throw in a little advertisement here, but I'm going to do a family series in the first part of the new year. And then in May, June, I'm going to do another series on moral issues. And both of those, if you'll agree with me, are, are battlegrounds for us as the followers of Christ. The family is a battleground in spiritual warfare. And, and so are the moral issues or the government-sanctioned sin issues that we're seeing in our culture today. And we're going to deal with both of those in short series uh, in the new year. 
All right, picking up verse 10 then, we saw Gabriel. At least we suppose this is Gabriel. We saw him earlier in the book. He returns to strengthen Daniel, assures him in verse 11, notice that he's greatly loved. Now, isn't it interesting that the first thing that the angel says to him is, you're loved, you're greatly loved, Daniel. And this, this is so compelling because we understand from 1 John 4, 18, that perfect love casts out what? It casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. And so the angel knows Gabriel's bringing a message from God. And the first thing he wants Daniel to know is this. Yes, God is overwhelming. God is awesome in every way. God is to be feared because you still have sin in your life. But please understand, Daniel, God loves you. And you're here and receiving all of this because God wants you to hear all of this and to receive the message that he has for you. So he encourages him and he tells him in verse 12, fear not, you don't need to fear. And the reason why you don't need to fear, he says, is because you've humbled yourself before God. You never exalted yourself. You never thought it was about Daniel. You always lived for me. There was a point in your life where you made that decision and you followed your God and you remained consistent in that all of your life and remaining in that place of humility, knowing you didn't have the strength and relying on your God means you're in relationship with him and you don't need to fear anything. He tells him in the latter part of verse 12, you had this great dependency. You called out to God. God heard you. He answered your prayers. That's why I'm here. All of this assurance, all of these things he's telling him, you don't need to fear. You are loved. Your prayers have been heard. He's building him up. He's getting him ready to be a soldier. He's telling him about the spiritual warfare. And then verse 13, he reveals to him that there is this prince of the kingdom of Persia, this extremely powerful demon of some sort who has some kind of territorial responsibilities and who somehow was able to oppose a powerful angel like Gabriel and hold him back for three weeks. I know you would like me to explain that to you right now. But I have no ability to explain it beyond what we've just read in the scriptures. We're getting a little peek behind the curtain. There's some powerful angels. There's some powerful demons. They duked it out for three weeks. And Gabriel, for some reason, couldn't overcome him without Michael coming to give him a hand. That's the sum total of what I know. It's an incredible picture, but we don't want to miss the point. There's something going on. Beyond what we can see. And all of this is happening. Is this this a ramping up of spiritual warfare? It could very well be because at the end of verse 14, what we see is that Gabriel tells him, this is all about what's coming. Something, Something else is coming. God's delivering a prophetic word. He's telling him about the future. You got to imagine that 70 years prior, when Nebuchadnezzar's armies came marching on Jerusalem and flattened the city and burned the city and knocked down the temple and carried all those great Jewish people off into exile, you got to believe that Team Satan was pretty happy. The temple is down, no more worship, no more sacrifices, no more people singing songs to Yahweh. You got to believe that the, that the demons were cheering that they thought they had won the victory, that God's people had been stamped out and scattered across the world. Well, now all of a sudden, 
the angels are pretty active and a prophet is receiving a word and something awesome is going to happen. There's something more coming in the future. You got to, you got to understand that these, these, these princes of Persia and this prince of Greece, we're going to see these strong demons are being sent because God's getting ready to do something awesome. God's getting ready to do something awesome. All of this is framed up as a cosmic war. It's what verse 1 said. Remember that phrase? This is about a great conflict that's coming. And we'll look at that in chapter 11. Now, here's the thing. Though we are the victors in this war, due entirely to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and not, not because of anything we've done, we recognize that the victory has not yet been fully claimed. We're still in the, in the battle. One of the commentaries I'm reading through this series, a, a man by the name of Tremper Longman III wrote it, and he used this great illustration. As soon as I said it, I need to use it because it has to do with history, which we love here. And actually, it has to do with World War II history, which I particularly enjoy and this is, he just used the D-Day illustration and, and the end of World War II to make his point. There's, there's no doubt in anybody's mind that when the Allies crossed the English Channel and landed at Normandy on June the 6th, 1944, that that was the end of the war. As soon as the Allies crossed the Channel and gained a foothold and had a beachhead on the continent and began pouring in the abundance of supplies and of troops and, and with all of the expertise and everything that had been built up once they were on the continent, the war was over, June the 6th, 1944. But the reality is it took 11 more months for the war to actually end in Europe. It was on May the 9th, 1945, in fact, 11 full months later that Berlin fell and Germany surrendered. Everybody knows the war was over on D-Day. But the battle had to continue. That's where we're at. The, the battle is, is won. Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. We have eternal life. Sin and death have been defeated. You and I know the reality, though, that we're still fighting it out. D-Day has happened, but V-E Day is still to come. We're waiting to claim that final victory. And in the meantime, it's just this constant battling until Jesus returns. You and I live right now, as, as we sit here this morning, we think about our lives, you and I live between June the 6th, 1944, and May the 9th, 1945. That's where we're living right now. And we long for that final victory. And in the meantime, we're soldiers in this cosmic battle. We have to be moving steadily forward toward holiness and rooting out the darkness and the sin in our hearts and our minds. We have to take every village and every bridge and we have to establish new strongholds and new fronts and constantly moving that forward to occupy all of the land until our enemy is beaten. So listen. If all of that is true, if we are engaging each day as soldiers in a spiritual war, 
And we have to understand that when we come here together to do this, that we are not playing church. No one, no one is a Christian by default. Christianity isn't to be lived passively. This faith of ours is not a part-time pursuit. As the soldiers of Jesus Christ were at war, we're at war personally. We daily have to war against the temptations of the evil one, the sin that would come against us and that we might cave into. That's a daily, multiple times a day battle. We have to war against discouragement that would come when trials come our way and, and hardships come our way and that we would be sent into this tailspin of doubt and rejection of God. It's a personal war that we're engaged in. It's a war against our families, against our children. Do not think for a second that the world system that Satan has set up isn't 100% about taking your children from you, ideologically robbing them from you, rejecting everything that we believe about the gospel. The government is headed in that direction. The teaching of this world wants your children. That's a battlefield. Your marriage is a battlefield. Not only does Satan want to disrupt your marriage, but Satan wants to disrupt marriage, the institution of marriage. A stat came out this week saying, hooray for us. Divorce numbers are down. You know why they're down? Because millennials aren't even getting married. The institution of marriage is under attack. Friendship is under attack. We, we need to make our friendships based on what is important and what is of Christ and reject those things that are not important. Listen, we are at war, and unless we see the spiritual warfare behind the what we can see issues that we're facing every day, then we're going to lose these battles. The Apostle Paul wrote this, though we walk in the flesh, okay, though we're living in this physical world, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Why? Because there's an unseen battle behind this. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. The battle is in our hearts. The battle is in our minds. It's influenced by demons. It's influenced by a world system. It's influenced by our own flesh. But it's a battle in our thought life. It's a battle in our wills. It's a battle in our hearts. Christian, you are a soldier in the army of God, and you are at war. The battlefield is inside of you, and tremble at the thought of that. And then do something about it. Deep breath. One more to go. I feel like this message has been kind of light and fluffy so far, so let's just, let's just do one more. Tremble, Christian, because you depend for your life on the power of God. 15, verse 15. When he, Gabriel, had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. 
Behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, and then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. The first thing he says after he gets strengthened to actually be able to say something is, I have no strength. Okay? He still has nothing in him. Verse 17, how can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? How can I even talk to you? For now no strength remains in me, no breath. I'm, I'm breathless. No breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, oh, man, greatly loved. You should have this little part highlight it. Oh, man, greatly loved. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And that seemed to be enough. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you. You have strengthened me. Daniel was strengthened. And he was prepared to hear about the vision that God had given to him, even though he was facing the devastating effects of everything that he was seeing and experiencing in this moment. The touch of Gabriel, the strength of God coming through his messenger was enough for him. And now he was prepared to hear about the vision. And no matter what we do in life, whether we are even aware of the spiritual battle being waged in us and all around us, we are in fact in desperate need of the empowering touch of God. Aren't we? We need it right now. If I start thinking about trying to live this life in my own strength and in my own way, that's not nearly going to be enough for me. We need his power because we are so very frail and so susceptible to attacks from the evil one in the spiritual realm. And the world system is designed to wear us out and to weaken us and to take us down in the areas of temptation and sin and in the areas of facing trials and hardship. To discourage us and beat us down. And we feel weak as Daniel did because we have our priorities messed up in facing them. We, def we default this, this box over here, this physical box. I think this was the physical box. I think that was the spiritual one. You can see them, right? This physical box, this is, this is the, where we spend all of our time caring for ourselves. We care so much about the physical and, and, and eating right and exercising and all of this. And the reality is of all the parts of who we are, the physical part, the spiritual part, the soul, mind, will, emotions, all of that. The only part that isn't going to last into eternity is the body. And yet here we are spending so much time keeping ourselves alive and healthy physically. We default to caring for the physical first. So we pursue diets and exercise, which are good things. Okay, those are good things. We pursue healthy living as if that's the key to surviving this world. But see, that only helps with the physical, temporal part of who we are. Now, let me ask you this, all you Facebook posting healthy people, you know who you are. Do you spend at least as much time cultivating a healthy spirit, soul, and mind as you do caring for your body? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? 
Do you spend at least as much time with Christ as you, as you do doing crunches or, or on the treadmill or running or planning out your meal plan or, or preparing your food? Here, here's, a, here's You want a pro tip? You want a pro tip right now? Eat all the kale you can. Watch your carbs. Work out three times a week. And you're still going to die. <laughs> pro tip. Okay, all the people who are laughing right now are the people who never eat healthy and don't exercise. I get it. You think this is really funny. You're all like, go pastor. Right? Okay, but please understand, I am not saying don't do those things. I think it's wonderful you care for yourself. I try to eat healthy, and I was working out for a while. My personal trainer's in the room. I feel condemned even as I speak. But here's the thing. The perspective that we need to have on this is what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.8, while bodily training is of some value... Bodily training is of some value. Taking care of your body is of some value. Are you hearing me? Okay, I don't want to get any angry emails this week. Don't call me out in social media. Okay, just from the scripture here. Bodily training is of some value. Don't stop doing it if you're doing it. But godliness, Paul says, godliness is of value in every way. It benefits you spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically as it holds promise, the apostle writes, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Both of these things. And so we need to work out spiritually to unleash the power of God in our lives. We need a touch from his holy angels to overcome this world. And the effects of the evil one in our lives. Depend on God. Depend on God for your life. Depend on God and not yourself for your life. Tremble at that. Now, just some final comments, okay? We've kind of worked through everything in the message just as we bring this in for a landing. As we talk about trembling, my concern is that we're, we're fearful of the wrong things. We're afraid of the wrong things. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you're, you're afraid of the future. You don't know what's coming for you. Maybe you're afraid of um, instability in the world and it's just so unsettling to you or, or you're fearful of unsettledness in your own life. Maybe you fear the society around you that's increasingly anti-God and, and immoral and you fear raising your kids in the midst of it and what's going to happen with my kids, the next generation and, that gen and the generation after it. Maybe you fear being alone or maybe you fear death or debilitating illness or financial stability or mortality or maybe you simply fear the unknown. If instead we fear to holy God, if we have an encounter with the living God instead, I suspect that all of these other fears would melt away. And in fact, Oswald Chambers said that exact thing. The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. When you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. 
Tremble, Christian. Tremble at that. Let's pray. Father, first, um, an acknowledgement that you have given us your word in our hands. And uh, Father, we have read it and sought to study it here today and to know it better and to have it inform our lives. So God, I pray um, that we would tremble at the hearing of your word and the having of your word. And God, that you would do a deep work in us as we look at a world that is increasingly hostile towards you. And now perhaps even understanding in a greater way the unseen spiritual warfare that's going on beyond our sight. God, I pray that we would press in even more to you. God, that you would strengthen us. And God, that we would hear from you the words that Daniel heard, that we are loved, that we are heard, that we have humbled ourselves before you and shown our dependency on you in, in prayer and in, in worship and in every way. And so God, continue the work of transforming us and changing us. Cause us to tremble before you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.